0: folks welcome back inside the parisi palace high above 2919 east broadway this is our number two of the jake feinberg show Coming to you live on Power Talk. please go to our website, powertalk.live, download our free app and stream all of our live local shows, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show, and we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. Without further ado, I want to bring in a legendary uh, instrumentalist and melodic improviser. Sounds like he's in a bit of a loud area right now. David Murray, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. How are you? How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm it's,
1: fine.
0: I'm fine. Oh, it's great to talk to you, man. Yeah, I'm
1: on 125th Street, Fifth
0: Avenue, right now. <laughs> it's it's bu- it's bubbling out there.
1: Well, it's, it's not so. Is it too loud for you?
0: I'll let you know. I mean, it, it, now, now you sound real good right now, and it's it's a, it's a high honor to connect with you. Uh, All right. You, know, David, can you just talk a little bit about uh, in Oakland, uh, the. Uh, the clubs that you used to, uh, when you were younger, uh, you, you would go and see. I've, I've done a, a huge amount of research and, and interviews on with cats that were in that Oakland scene, guys like Kick and Curtis Moore, these drummers who played very unique styles. And uh, I just wanted you to talk about uh, a, a couple of seminal clubs in the Oakland area that you used to go and maybe even, and maybe even play at once in a while.
1: Well, you know, when I was when I was there I was basically growing up, you know. So I hadn't quite even even pierced the whole jazz scene uh by the time I left, you know. I try I was like a the kind of guy who um I used to play at Esther's Over the Room, I used to play at New Ruthies Inn. I used to play at you know, all these funk and blues places when I was there. I I played a lot of proms. I went to Berkeley High and then I went to Saint Mary's High School. I used to play with Junius Courtney and his Cavaliers. Uh we played um kind of a social kind of music, uh for dances at country clubs and whatnot. Junius Courtney was kinda of like a New Orleans trumpet player cat who uh, <laughs> who ended up uh you know, coming from New Orleans and his son his son played drums uh court, Courtney, he played drums and tenor saxophone. He kind of sounded like Lester Young on tenor and played drums for the band. Um, and I met Bob Barrett and I went to St. Mary's and you know, things started changing, but I was basically playing funk and, you know, with the notations of soul and, uh, in one piece and playing with Stanley Franks and guitar and, you know, we, we, were, we were mostly, uh, kind of a funk oriented kind of a thing, kind of like, uh, Robin Dewey and uh, I think The Maze, you know The the band Maze, we were kind of like that Uh, And and it wasn't Until I, you know, got to be uh, 16 uh, 15 or 16 That I really got into jazz
0: Did you you know cats like uh, Or did you see cats like Jimmy McCracklin Or, uh, you know, some of the old blues I mean, there was all this intermeshing The music was all there were no labels, David. I mean, that's one reason I believe that you were truly able to liberate yourself. Well,
1: it's black music, you know. I mean, I I, I went to a jam session on Slauson Avenue in L.A. with Eddie Cleanhead, Vince, and we kind of clicked. And uh, I had met Bobby Bradford because when I went to Pomona College, you know, he was my mentor because Stanley Cross he was teaching at Pomona College. And then I met Bobby Bradford and a lot of cats from L.A., you know, Red Hollander and, you know... Um, James Newton, and people like that, Buddy Collette and all these LA guys. But I didn't, I didn't leave, I didn't leave uh, the Bay Area. I, I mean, I'm from Berkeley, basically. I didn't, I didn't leave Berkeley until 1973. I went to Pomona College. I stayed there for a year and a half, and then I came to New York on an independent study. So you know, and the Horse Taps, Guy, Arthur Blythe, and all these people, you know, um, that came later. But growing up, I was mostly. Playing with, uh, you know, guys and funk music, playing, playing in rock bands, uh, big bands. Uh, you know, my jazz came around about 15, I guess. I, I wasn't really into it before then, but, you know, I was just trying to make some money with my saxophone. And, you know, playing blues gigs, walking the bar. I remember walking the bar a lot, playing uh, playing to some of these uh, strip joints, you know, because tenor is very popular in strip joints my friend uh Merritt had a gig with Carol Dota, and I went over there a few times and play play with them on the Northeast. But you know, we were kinda young so we couldn't last we couldn't convince them for too much time that we were as young as we were. But uh you know, I, I grew up and then we I would put together horn sections for casting the rich men, and they come, you know, Bobby Blue Bland and different cats like that. Uh I remember playing with Irma, Irma Thomas wow, uh, at wow. at the New Ruthie's Inn down there on San Pablo. You know, kind of chicken, you know, sitting and joints.
0: Well, I was going kind of to ask, you, did you play the? Did you ever play the Cold Duck Club?
1: Uh, I heard of it, but no, I never played there.
0: Yeah, because like th- that scene. So I mean, that Black Chitlin Circuit. No, where,
1: where is the Where is that in oh, Oakland?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because uh, David oh, East Fourteenth Street. Yeah, or where, where is
1: that? Yeah, I don't know exactly well, where. I mean, well, I, might, I I used to play at the at the uh, American Veterans Post Club, which was kind of like that, but it was like a really you know it's one of them kind clubs where you go down the hall and they got mirrors in the hallway. And then in the back, they're gambling. And then like, <laughs> the strippers in the front. And we playing with our band. That's like '98 and East 14th Street out in El Sabinney Park. It was kind of funky, you know?
0: Oh, man. I mean, but, that's what my show I mean, just for the record, David, I, I was born in uh, 1978. So you know, I'm, I'm sort of just trying to go back in time to uh, pull out some of this, this authenticity. You know, I, I, I
1: was in New York in 1978. That's what I, I went to Paris in 1978 and did... About nine records in one year. Uh, that was a big year for me, but I was over. I was over in, in Europe.
0: I wanted you to. I know this is really important, though, because a lot mm-hmm. of th- this is a very important part of the Southern California African Afrocentric jazz scene. Bobby Bradford was. Yeah,
1: John Carter. Uh,
0: yes, man, and I, I. One of my dear friends is a cat named Henry Franklin, the skipper, the bass player. Yeah, I know yeah, I know I knew Henry Franklin. Okay, and, and they did some albums with Bobby Bradford and John Carter. Can you talk about what was most inspiring insofar as a, their their ethos as it related to transcendent spiritual music? What got you off about their ethos? Well, you know, I mean it,
1: Bobby was uh, kind of uh you know, he he's from he's from uh, Mississippi, but uh, but he he went to Fort Worth very early, and he hooked up with Ornette. and it was it was him that brought Arnett to L.A. to work as the elevator operator at Bullock's Department Store. So you know, it was that Texas uh, California connection, and then you know, I mean, people like uh, I knew Arnett very well, uh, people like Julius Hemphill from the World's Force, God bless him. Uh, you know, John Carter's also from Fort Worth. A lot of people from Fort Worth, Texas. You know, Charles Moffett. You know, all these people. You know, that I end up finding in New York, but I found them first out in California because Charles Moffett was out in California. He was out in Berkeley. He had a school out there with Kate so, uh, and Mosley. So, and his whole family was out there. And I first, I first met Arnett when, when uh. When when Stanley Krause interviewed him, he was playing at the at the Keystone Corner at Todd Balkin's place, and, uh, and I had played there with uh, with uh, Eddie Moore, who died on stage at Yoshi's. Jesus, so were
0: you you were you on the gig that he died? No, okay,
1: no. he did a New Year's gig, and we played opposite Max Roach's band and also Dexter Gordon. Wow! And so that was kind of my my first real big gig out there. Uh, I had also played a gig with Abby Lincoln. and uh, um uh this guy named uh, Bob Bray had got me on pulled me on the gig. I played soprano. I was just lucky to be I was at the Civic Center in San Francisco. But that was along, that was at the uh Black uh Black uh something awards. no black something what do you call it? Urban League Black Something anyway ray charles played there so it was kind of my one of my first big gigs that i did with abby lincoln and i ended up playing with her later on in in, in europe you know
0: different things what i mean but you said you didn't really the jazz, jazz did not really register with you you said around until 1970 and i really just wanted to know bradford like what were those well kind of, well I, actually yeah actually the cat who
1: introduced me Real hard swinging, that I mean, I, I had been studying already. I I, I had studied um, Colvin Hawkins and Ben Webster and Ellington Hawkins' office and all these people, you know, prior to meeting uh, Ray Anderson, the trombone player who lives here in Long Island, he's married to Arthur Ash's uh, ex wife, uh, wow. and now, and uh, he's a great trombone player, so he. He actually, uh, his sister went to school at Pomona, and he, he went through Pomona to visit her on his way up to San Francisco, to Haight-Ashbury. And then we hooked up. Me and, me and uh, Ray Anderson hooked up at a audition for this band called Mixed Company, and we both won the jobs. And so we were playing around the, the Bay Area, you know, uh, you know, people like Marvin Holm, up and people like that, you know, these kind of bands. Uh, what's the uh Oh God! Uh, Marvin Holmes uh, and the you
0: were playing with Marvin Holmes. Or you were playing alongside of them.
1: Well, you know, uh, uh, well, uh, well, we, we were playing uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did a couple of games. Oh, that is so classic. That is so classic. Maybe, maybe another guy. Um, what was the other guy that played guitar? who uh, used to play with, uh Oh my God! I can't remember his name. He used to play with Marvin Gaye sometimes. Oh God! Don't let me forget his name. Like it'll me. come. It'll
0: come back. This is unbelievable. You play with Marvin Holmes in the Uptights, so though. That's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, you know, I was a lot of bands I I mean, I, you know, there was. Uh, I think I might have did a couple of subs there for. What's uh, what's that band that that used to be kind of popular? Uh, uh, the Tower a Tower of Power? Yeah, yeah. Lenny Lenny Pickett went to school with me. You know, I, I might have. Maybe I might have played a, 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 a sub or two with him. Or wow, with him. wow,
0: that's incredible! But, but, he, but
1: he was, but see, he was always better than me when I was there. I didn't really, you know. I mean, we we were in the same grade, but I mean, he got dropped out of school in the tenth grade. So, uh um, but he used to practice all the time, and I was always like uh, checking him out, you know. But but those cats were weird, vastly for me, you know. It was, even though he was the same age, he was like hanging with some hairier cats, and uh,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 this is, but it's so it's like, but David, here's the point: is that like you, to me, it was like you were not making anything close to commercial music. You look at any of the titans of, of the of this music, Ahmad Jamal, who I've had a chance to interview, Ramsey Lewis; those cats were signed to major labels and were playing cover tunes, and they were playing a little bit of. They they were not stretching. To the cosmos, and, no,
1: no, and, no. But you talk about the pathos of Bobby Bradford, and that's, that's right. People, well, see, I met, Bob, I met Bobby, I met Wilbur Morris and Butch Morris. I met Dave Baker. You know, a lot of this came from, uh, you know, like I said, Stanley was teaching, was teaching um, a music uh, listening course at Pomona College, and he also taught uh, Herman Melville or Moby Dick. He had a class; it was one of the most popular classes there. Uh so I was kind of wanted to be a writer too. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a, well, I'd always been a tennis player, but I, I kind of was interested in writing and plays and, you know, trying to be like a Mary Baraka and uh, James Baldwin and people like that. You know, I was a young guy and I was uh, very impressionable, but I had, uh, you know, I, I had excelled in, in, in writing when I was in high school and I, I was kind of, you know, then I got into the politics and all that. And it just seemed so alluring to me at that time. But finally i just uh ended up uh selling in with uh with with ray anderson and he's the one that, like i said his sister went to promona and then he came up to Haydashville. we met we met at this uh at this uh mixed company audition and then after that you know uh you know we played around around there we we would open up for uh, what's that guy the, that group uh there's <laughs> no place I want to be but where you The Isley Brothers. Wow. Yeah, we, we, would, we would open up for them at, uh, at the Berkeley community. You know, I mean, uh, I remember 1970, I was at Berkeley High before I went to St. Mary's. I mean, I actually shook Jimi Hendrix's hand, you know, before he went on stage in 1970, the year he passed. And uh you know, um, he was so fucked up, his hand was numb, <laughs> but uh, he went on and he just became another person uh I, I mean, I was on the board, and we wanted Jimmy that year because and we' were the ones to got them there because Berkeley High is like right the at the uh you know at the theater, so we wanted Jimmy, so we got Jimmy so that was like year that kind of turned me out, and you know then you know it was like it was like going from funk to going to like uh you know, like like uh, George Clinton kind of shit, Sly Stone, I had met Sly some years earlier in Churches, you know, Church of God in Christ in Vallejo, you know, and so I met him on the bandstand and with his sister, you know, because I grew up, you know, playing church music with my mother and at the, you know, at the Missionary Church of God in Christ right there on Byron and Austin Way in, in Berkeley, so, you know, I come out of the church, basically, that was the we, we had a great band. Our family, my father, played guitar. My brother was playing clarinet. My cousin played trumpet. And, you know, I mean, they, they didn't have a saxophone, so I got a saxophone. And there was the Dosties The Dosteys family was the Church of God in Christ up in Sacramento. Then there was Fly's fam, the Fly's family that was uh, in Rio. So, you know, that's a whole other life for me, you know, the whole church life. So I come out of the church, basically, Church of God in Christ.
0: I mean, this is, we're talking to David Murray here. He's talking about his early life and career. Um, this Black Chitlin Circuit was run by a guy named uh, Charles Sullivan. Does that name ring right. up? Okay. Yes, it does. Okay, I am very fascinated with this cat because Calvin Keys, another great Bay Area guitar, right. guitarist, told me that uh, – that Sullivan was—I mean, he was rocking out. I mean, he had all the black clubs in the Fillmore District. He had James Brown and the Flames coming in, or you know, you know, cats like, uh, you know, Sly. They, I mean, everybody would be on this Chitlin Circuit.
1: But, but, yeah, but see, that was see, those cats were just a tad older than me. No, I know, but I want to and, ask. And I was like, and I wouldn't have been in that zone. You know, I was—I wasn't quite in their zone. No, no, know? no. I want to ask know, you though.
0: You know, I want to ask you something. Is it Calvin said that that. That Charles Sullivan was found dead from a shotgun blast in his car with twenty grand in cash, and the next thing you know, Bill Graham took over the Fillmore, and it was like a, a mob hit on this cat. And I just wanted to know, based on the fact that you were uh, o- o- uh, uh, o- Oakland-born and raised Berkeley high cat, can you shed some light on Sullivan's significance and how, if in fact, there's any credence to the fact that this was this was a Graham walked into this situation based on the fact that Sullivan was murdered. It was a mob hit.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I, I can't speak on that, and if I if I even knew, I wouldn't say. Right. <laughs> but but you know, uh, all I know is uh, the first time I played at the at the film was with uh, with my octet and uh, the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir and. You know, let's join me over there and we packed the joint. Oh that's my. all I what, know. Year, what year was that. that?
0: What year was that, baby? Unbelievable.
1: Well that's I mean I, that was after I had played with them here at Madison Square Garden and we had also played at the Coliseum. Oh, so you're talking
0: We're, I mean you're talking uh this I'm is in the 90s. yeah. It, I yeah, did I'm talking about nineties and
1: stuff. I did. You know? I did. But I
0: dig. but
1: you know, I can't I can't really speak on on the murder because that was a little before me. Um I don't think Johnny Guitar Watson had come out there already. But, uh, oh, man, I'm trying to remember this cat guitar player. Yeah, man. I do.
0: I'm trying to look for it too, man. I know it's on the, the tip of my Johnny tongue. Johnny Talbot. Yes.
1: Johnny Talbot and the Thing.
0: And the fangs.
1: Yeah, see, Johnny Talbot is still a good friend of mine. Oh my and, uh, God, Calvin. You know, we Talbot. we hit it a little bit, but uh, he's, he's a great, he's a great, great, great. He's probably one of the best out of the barrier ever,
0: ever, you know. ever. So, yeah, but no, so, so I mean, the the, the, the um, I th- this whole thing though. You, you mentioned this. Uh, uh, did you like? I mean, did, were you a cat that was? aware of like uh jackson sutter i mean were you going to see uh rudolph johnson i mean who were some of the the older elder statesmen that you that were channeling you know a, a yogic existence and you know just playing the thesaurus of scales i mean what i'm trying to say is like you're leaving this planet every time you're playing and even some of the older guard cats they may, had to make it more commercial the business well, you made,
1: remember the, when there was there was two cats there was a two uh There were two guys, Melvin and Marvin Williams, and there was like two mulatto cats. They both did three-card money up there on Telegraph. I came after a lot of shit, you know? I mean, I wasn't really... The the guys you're talking about, they were just... You know, I I have to say, they were just a little ahead of me. And, you know, I wasn't... I'd go play at New Ruthie's Inn. I'd I'd play at Esther's Harvard Room and places like that. we played out some shit joints in Lichlund, you know, but... I mean, I was pretty much obscure. I was not, I was not in the league of those guys. And even when I left in '73, I was, I had moved on away from that. And I was, I wanted to be like on that Coleman or Train or somebody, you know. Uh huh. You know, Sonny Rollins. You know, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really. My head wasn't into the Chitlin' Circuit. I was like, I was like looking at that kind of music as the kind of music you grow up with, but then. You know it's like when you when you're a kid you want to eat cereal but when you grow up you might want to have a steak <laughs> i was like you know kind of like looking at the music like that but you know i could you know I, I I was i had become more opinionated in what kind of even genre of jazz that i wanted to play you know i was i wanted to be in front i didn't want to be in the. i got tired of playing with the mnemonics and uh you know, these little singing groups in the Bay Area that, you know, they keep looking at you, looking back at you like you messed up on the bandstand. And really, they can't sing at all. <laughs> you know, so, no, so, like, you know, I, I wanted to be in the front. I didn't want to be in the back.
0: I mean, uh, what was the kind of um, sociological, uh, political point of view of Cats? Like, to me, it was like Bradford, Horace Tapscott, those guys – they weren't they knew the only way to affect change was only they could affect change in their world and what they could do creatively and i well, just well
1: okay go on go no, on no no i mean
0: i just you know what it is david like you're part of this important lineage of spiritual players that did never conform to the business and the bradford was like that he's still teaching today he's a merc- mercurial cat i haven't been able to track him down tap scott had he's, a, he's,
1: he's teaching at pomona college where i went to school and 4 years ago he helped me to get uh him, along with david osterbeig the president of pomona Club, they uh they, they bestowed upon me uh, an honorary doctorate degree and he was part of that okay See? i mean, so, I mean, and, I mean and, I, and i could tell you a story about yeah him. go ahead please i was the one who got I went to Pomona. When I went to Pomona, I got a state scholarship. I went there. They didn't have a jazz program. Only kid I even knew about was Stanley Crouch. And I was into him because of his revolutionary poetry. Ain't no ambulances for no niggas tonight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That, was, that was put out by Bob Field and, uh you know, Impulse Records. So, you know, I was into that. You know, and that's how I met Bobby. And, uh, you know, you have to know that Bobby, Tapscott, uh, John, uh, John uh, Carter, John Carter, and all these people in LA—they were always uh, professors at colleges, so they had figured out a way to let uh, the education system pay their bills, so they could be uh, play this intellectual kind of conversational music, avant-garde, quote, uh, unquote, avant-garde, uh, new music. And so we were, um, So we're dealing with the whole idea of teachers, you know. And, and James Newton, uh, he also became a teacher. He's a professor uh, now, back at UCLA. Yeah, being, sure, you know, absolutely, long, long absolutely. I mean, these are the people that I came up with, you know. And I, I didn't choose that route, even though I have a doctorate. I mean, I do lectures and I do, I do master classes all over the world, not just in America, but uh, I, I live in, I live in Paris, I live in New York, and I live in Portugal. So you know, I, I I'm I'm pretty worldly uh, as, as I am now, but but then I was just trying to learn. what these guys knew, you know. Bobby told me he came to New York and he played. He stayed in New York for a year. You know, that Coleman may not play a concert during that time. He went, and, and even in his whole career, he hardly played one or two concerts in three years. So Bobby came to New York to play with all I mean, actually, he was the first trumpet um, not Don Cherry. It was actually the first cornet with with uh, with, with with Arnett Coleman. Well, people don't remember that. They remember Don Cherry because Don Cherry, you know, that's that's they got real tight. And when they went to New York, he was the cat. But uh, Don and Don was a great friend of mine and a great friend of all of us. But uh, you know, Bobby Bradford was important. Was a very important figure of science fiction, and he couldn't hang with Arnett because Arnett didn't play that often, and and even. It, throughout his own whole career, sometimes he'd go through gas where he wouldn't even perform for
0: five years. Wow, I mean, I mean.
1: But he would practice every day with the band and expect the band to be laying in the cut with him. You know, Cass can, Bobby told me, he said, man, I got a family, man, I got, you know, I, I gotta go back, I gotta go back to LA.
0: David Murray just blowing, can you relay, I mean, you said you wanted to learn from these guys uh, What was like Could you talk about Something profound Insofar as I mean Dewey Redmond Like that cat To me must have been uh, An idol to you In some ways Because he used to talk To Michael Howell And be like You know Michael was like I can't hear it I can't hear it And he's like You'll hear it You'll hear it eventually Like it's the idea of like Sonically stretching your ears And I mean you were playing With these All these outfits In the Bay Area But these I mean All I know is that When I listen to Bobby Bradford's music. There's a couple of albums on like Revelation that came out. Just ridiculous albums with John Carter. And,
1: and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the fact is, what they both did, they both became professors, which afforded them the opportunity to become become a virtuoso on their own instruments. See, those cats were having conversations because you can't have a conversation with a, with a musician that plays like a clarinet with a cornet. You can't have a con- A conversation, intellectual, grown-up conversation. Unless you become a virtuoso, and in order to be afforded that opportunity, that luxury, you have to become some kind of a professor. You have to have another job to support the job that you really like.
0: That never so that that kind of musical terminology could never exist on its own. There were very few cats that could ever pull that off.
1: Well, you know, I mean, but, but see, you see, right now, even all the cats in New York, all of the virtuosos in New York, they're all teaching at the New School, they're teaching at NYU, they're teaching at the Manhattan School of Music. All of the great musicians are teaching somewhere, because you know, maybe, maybe if they don't teach somewhere, they end up like the great John Hicks, playing every night somewhere, and uh, you know, and uh, then you die at sixty-one. You know, I mean, he's just out in the public so much. You, you got to drink something. You got to hang out. You got to
0: do this and that to be who you are. And then finally, their life will kill you. Um, I, I got an email uh, from a fan. Uh, he said, please ask David about the residency or frequency of which he played at Sweet Basil's and what was going on those years. What was the significance of that period, especially as related to the octet? In the mid-'80s, roughly.
1: Well, the octet, we we went to Chicago to do a gig at the Jazz Festival. Then we, we were supposed to come out to Denver and play at this place. I think it was called the Blue Note or something. And when we got in the mountains, they said the gig was canceled. So we had to go through this, some kind of a – we had to go through the motions. And then we, I think we went – We had our next gig was in Texas at the Caravan of Dreams. Man, when I got back to New York, I owed the band $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, I had set up, like, Monday nights with my big band at Sweet Basil. I'd be paying the cash from the tour for six weeks. I had to pay off that $10,000 from being broken with the band when we went out on the road. I had a great octet that We had Olu Dara. Hell, man. That's when I met E. Reagan. He joined the band out there. Rashoots, I dig, man. I, we had, was, you know, Craig, we had all kind of great musicians up in that band, uh, you know, so... But you know, Monday nights at Sweet Basil was supported by Black Saint Records. We did two, we did two live albums there, Volume One and Two. You know, that was like uh, kind of like the, uh, I guess that was the beginning of my, my big band actually started in seventy eight, but that's another story. Yeah. But this is the second phase of the big band, and we did a run there. We did Monday nights, and it was great. Uh, and, in fact, right now, I'm going to I'm gonna do a showcase down here at the Poisson Rouge on Bleeker Street on the uh, January the 6th, and I'm going to touch another generation. So I have to write a text tonight about that, about touching touching another generation. And then we did the whole thing at the Knitting Factory. That went on for some time, three years or something. You know, so now I'm trying to touch a new generation of musicians. It's, uh, it's, it's very... uh. Uh, I go, went down to Smalls last night, I'm trying to collect my band. There's a lot of lot of guys who listen to that and they learn they learn how to play off of some of my records. And and they're so crazy that the young some of the young guys these some of the students some of them in the thirties, some in their forties. They're like excited that I'm gonna put this big band together, that I'm gonna take it down I'm gonna take it down and do uh, you know, a month here of Monday nights, a month here a Thursday nights, a month in Harlem or some nights, you know, I'm, I'm gonna next year is gonna be a big year for me because I'm back in New York City, and you know, my uh, my expertise that I've gathered by by proxy all all these years is uh, it, it's gonna pay off because you know I, I've had a lot of experience being a band leader, from being from playing with trio, from playing from playing with trio to playing big band octet, uh, big band with strings. You know, I, I know a lot of shit,
0: and I'm I'm, I'm going to show it all off all, all next year. You're going to see a lot coming from me. Oh, I mean, I I, I I mean, in the in the mid '80s, can you just with that octet? I mean, can you talk about the state of what you what really what you were trying to do sonically and how it was you were trying to stretch the vocabulary of the music with that band? All I know is this: that my friend that asked this question went to see you guys all the time. He said it was. He he said his ears grew more than ever in any other part of his life.
1: Well, you know, um, you know, being a fan of uh, you know Charlie Mingus and the Middle sized Group, you know, like that. You know, being a fan of Tad and you know, those Jones uh, as a Ranger, you know, people like that. You know, I wasn't as great as them, but I could use those tools. I use those tools and try to a truncate what you might hear in a big band, but in a small group, you know, some Ellington's recording, sometimes he would break down and uh, break it down to like a octet, no net. Um, you know, you get a lot out of those groups, you know, and it, and it teaches you really it's a real good study for writing for big band. You know, you write for less instruments and try to get more. You try to get as much as out of a, from a big band as you can because it's a standing unit, it's not a sitting unit, and you're more mobile. And it's, it's more like a quintet or a quartet, you know. So, but you got you got like five horns. You got four other horns with you. So you have the opportunity to really master energy on the people, and the soloers have to all be good. And you have to have a very good drummer. Sometimes I had, I've had Billy Higgins. I've had Eddie Blackwell. I've had, you know, uh, going down through history. I've had Steve McCall. I've had Philip Wilson. Uh, you know I, I've, I've had even some drummers that you don't know about but uh, but they all have but, but what they what the drummers would always tell me was that you always have to create a situation inside of a song uh, where everybody don't get an opportunity to sing for solo long each song because it then would just sound like some kind of bullshit class like when, when I'm with my right. <laughs> you know but, but see, but, see but, you, but you gotta pick you gotta pick two solos and in the in two solos besides yourself the solo, maybe you have got three solos in the composition, and those cats have to stretch until they're finished. And then what you do, you reinforce it by the background of the horns. And so it's always like a like a one two whammy, you know. It's like the rope a dope, you know. You, you know, when you come out, you come out strong, you know. And and uh, everybody, I mean, there's there's conduction inside, and that's the whole thing with Rich Morris and the conduction. Uses conduction inside of a small unit like an and So, you know, you, you know you're you doing more than just playing the saxophone. You're conducting the band from being on the band down with your saxophone.
0: Um, can you just, uh, when you mentioned Sonny Murray, Ed Blackwell Steve McCall These guys are legendary I didn't, mention, I didn't mention Sonny Murray Your memory is You are so sharp, dude I did I mentioned Sonny Murray <laughs> Yes, you did Yeah But but can you talk about Your concept Because it, I think A lot of cats One reason, they're no, so-
1: the reason The reason I say that Is because Sonny Murray Is from another ilk See, now Sonny Murray Is the is father Of guard drummer Drumming He's 80 years old Right now He's a little sticky, He's in Paris He's, uh, I, I know him I've known him for a long time. He's a great man. Now, see, there's nobody in the world that could beat him playing sound patterns and, you know, like playing was talking about those sheets of sound and the sound patterns in 1966. He was the drummer of the year in Downbeat. He said he was not a drummer but an acoustician.
0: <laughs> I love this. This is exactly where I wanted to. I wanted you to talk about this concept of sound patterns and the idea of instead of being so obsessed – about where the one is and 4/4 four, four time being in a group where any note can be the one. I want you to talk about your concept of the, I think one reason there's so much interest in your in coming back and blowing it all out next year is because of the idea that you're willing to take chances, you're trying to grow the vocabulary of music and you're not interested in conventional time signatures. So can you talk a little bit about
1: Well, we'll, and, we'll see right right now right now what you have to be, what I am, and what I've become in New York, and that's why I've been so successful in terms of crossing different genres, is because you can't be scared of all those genres. See, see, when I came to New York with the whole Lost jazz thing and all that, you know, there was a there was a a total split dichotomy between the 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 bebop cast and the outcast. See. Now, see, I was one that always straddled the line, but but I did make sure through Bobby Bradford and people that I played with that I learned both sides, and see, and that's what's given me a little longevity now. But I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you. I mean, I I appreciate both. I appreciate I I appreciate music that has no meter. But the only problem with that is, is that is that the, when we did that. We, we we lost the, we lost a lot of the audience. We do that. We play with no meter, and then one cat would blow for half an hour, then the <laughs> other cat would blow. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not sure that the audience was with us on all of it. Maybe some of the diehards were, but but right now they're all dead.
0: I mean, uh, you play with no meter, though. I mean, like that isn't that something that you? How do you work up to that point where you, when you were in the groove? I'm not. I, I, I mean, you work with you work with you work with the, you work with the melodic uh, invention.
1: You you develop. That's what Bobby and John were doing. They and, and 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 Arnett Coleman. They would they would use the melody as the as the the driving factor. The drums were just the drums became a became a, a like a. Uh, a mosaic of different sound patterns and different um, how can you say sounds just, uh, like waves in the ocean or like thunder like lightning or like you know not lightning but thunder but, but, but sound sketches you know and it gave you a perfect kind of some musicians can't play can't play bebop but there are mu- musicians that could play in this and this sound sketches kind of idea. And so what it did when it comes to the total the total uh world of jazz, what it did it allowed a lot of uh people that wouldn't wouldn't have been able to play Bebop to actually play and get on the stage and play. And so what happened there was that there became a lot of uh charlatans that were up there. There were guys <laughs> that didn't quite know their horns. Yeah. You know, and then uh, you know, and then there were guys who couldn't swing? And then Braxton came along, and then he allowed a lot of people that sounded like him to come in that that couldn't actually make the attack to make the rhythmic kind of uh, impetus that you need to be a soloist. He made that way. I mean, it, 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 it's like the Lenny Tristano's and the and the Lee Conuses and the, these people that that didn't have the attack that maybe. Uh, train or Sonny Rollins would have, it gave them opportunity to come in. So, you know, that's why I always say that jazz, when you look at jazz, jazz is a very ecumenical kind of a music. I mean we let all kinds into our into our society, to our community. Now if you look at classical music, um they don't allow people that are not like them into that community. You see, but jazz I mean, there's a a guy over playing a saxophone somewhere in Japan that can raise three kids off of playing jazz. There's a guy in Australia that probably raised three kids off of playing jazz. There's there's a guy in New York who who plays jazz that that doesn't know one bebop lick who raised his family. So, you know, jazz is a big umbrella, and that's what's so beautiful about it. And and this whole truncation of that idea that, that is that that is, it seemed to be permeated the whole jazz uh, community is that it has to it has to go back and restart itself and start playing some old hashed up bebop. I mean, the guys played bebop that had that was donkeys and you know, heroin. They played it way better than these young guys here that never smoked a joint in their
0: fucking life. <laughs> Dude, you are on fire! But I mean, isn't that part of it? I mean. You're, you have been in so many different vectors. I mean, is it the case? I mean, Jimmy Heath said that the cats today do not have the dynamic range or understanding of their instrument that, that, that your gener- or his generation did. And I Well, those cats are playing their story, man. Those cats have a story in their life. Right. I mean, like everybody said, oh, yeah, you got to
1: hear this 10-year-old drummer. I said, well, look, I'll listen to him after he's had two divorces and a court trial. And uh, after he's, if he's kicked about three times, I will listen to his story
0: after that. But right now, I'm not interested in listening to some ten year old motherfucker. Yeah, Murray, you are. A, David, can we do part two in a, in a couple weeks? I would love. I have a lot more to get to, but I'm short on time. Surely we can. We can.
1: I'll be in Europe, but you, uh, I'll give you my European number.
0: All right. Well, we'll. we'll uh, I'll call you later. I'll get you a copy of this too. I had a ball, man.
1: Okay. No problem. Yeah. Love always. All right, yeah, thank cheers. you very much Bye-bye, buddy All right. All right later
0: Yep. Heavy jazz day here on the Jake Feinberg show um, We had James M. Tume Who uh, doesn't do interviews But apparently had the greatest interview of his life And then uh, David Murray with up in uh, He was up in Harlem there uh, These cats Heavy, heavy, heavy day Take a short musical interlude Let Roper throw on a tune And uh, come back and do some voiceovers In the last 15 minutes of the Jake Feinberg show you. <laughs>